For us people with disability, living in our own home isn't something we expect to just happen. With my sister living in her own home, she has that space and the freedom to live the life that she wants to live and to do it on her terms. Often, we have to make it happen by ourselves or with our family and our allies. She's reclaimed her voice and her home. She's the boss and she's pretty good at telling everybody she's the boss and I'm happy that she's the boss. What makes your home feel like yours? Is it a picture on the wall, having family and friends over, or just feeling relaxed when you close the bedroom door? For me, it's when I first open the front door and I look to my left where an Aboriginal painting's hanging up, painted by my mother about my grandfather, a strong Wanarua elder that went through the stolen generation and showing his storylines of where it all started to where he is now. In this episode, you'll find out what Marisha likes to have on her walls and how she's made her home her own. Here's Marisha and her sister Sharon giving a conference presentation together. Okay, it's our turn. Our turn. Good morning, everyone. My name is... My name is... Melinda! And who am I? Your sister, Sharon. Yep. Marisha is the boss of her home. What we have done now is to reclaim my sister and her voice, haven't we, Rish? It's your turn now. I'm the boss. Yeah, you're the boss. So how do you support someone with disability to be the boss of their home? How can a house or a flat feel and look like a home and not a workspace? And how can you support someone to take the role of neighbour, host to visitors or housemate, rather than the negative label and tired old role of client? Her sister Sharon explains the small and big steps that got her there. Here's Sharon at Marisha's home. We're sitting in Marisha's lounge room. You'll see a lot of family photos. So Marisha is one of five children, so I'm the oldest and three other brothers. It's got a lot of her art. She's an artist and she had an exhibition at the Hope Street Cafe and there's a rather large display of that sort of main piece of art, which is a a nice centrepiece for her lounge room. Downstairs it's got two bedrooms, so one is the guest room. It's not a staff room. We changed that language around, you know, it's not a house, it's her home and there's no staff room, it's a guest room. And then upstairs there's a spare bedroom. We haven't quite worked out what we're doing with that. We're thinking maybe her dressing boudoir 
because Marisha's a, a, a woman in her 40s who loves to wear dresses and skirts and she takes a lot of pride in how she looks and, yeah, we thought that might be a way of her having all of her clothes, um, shoes, jewellery, hair clips. She has this amazing afro. Yeah, if it's all out in this beautiful dressing room, then she can make her choices around what she's going to wear for the day. Quite often after a big day, she'll love to come home and probably change her dresses or or skirt and um, then sit on the couch and chill. She has left all of her Michaels all over the couch. Marisha is a loyal Brisbane Lions fan, a passion she shares with her dad. My sister loves to carry a picture of Michael Voss and he was the past Brisbane Lions player and coach. My father is a a long-time, I think even a founding supporter of the Brisbane Bears, now Lions. He said he took Marisha to a practice match at Cooparoo once and she got to meet him and had a conversation with him. And I'm not sure if it's since then, but possibly. And then, yeah, she's always carried this picture. She goes to Officeworks every Wednesday, her local store, and they know her now and she goes to the photocopier and prints various colours and sizes of Michael. (laughs) And it's great to see that, you know, it's her home, it's lived in and she's created a home that she's comfortable in and got all of her favourite things in it. One thing that's really important for her is that she continues to live in this townhouse because it's in the community where she grew up. She's lived here for so long. She's known. She's recognised. And I'm actually in the process of purchasing the property. So I've got that surety for her in terms of her living arrangements. Marisha's townhouse really is her home. She's got places for all the things that are important to her her art, her clothes, her jewellery, and, of course, her Brisbane Lions memorabilia. It's a place where she can just chill. Marisha has lived here for about seven years. For the past two years, she's lived here alone. Before that, Marisha had a flatmate, an old friend from school. Sharon remembers the day Marisha moved out of home. She probably would have been 30s when she moved out of home. So it probably would have been 2012. So mum had chronic health issues and so she obviously knew that she needed to set things up so that if something did happen to her that Marisha was in a stable home environment, in a home of her own. And I think uh, it was almost like we were ready as a family for her to move out. All of her siblings had moved out, so she was the last child to be at home, but she was a young woman. It was exciting and I remember, I actually remember being emotional. (laughs) Emotional now. I remember driving there with mum and I said, why am I crying? You should be crying. (laughs) But I think it was that whole recognition that, as families, we strive for having our family member live in a home of their own and then 
and she'd done it. You know, we'd reached that goal, that milestone. And when she did first move out of home, she moved into a unit. It was very small. It was with her school friend. It was over at Mount Gravatt, so it was probably, you know, half an hour from mum and dad. But if I look back at photos, she was very happy. I suppose like when I think when I first moved out of home, it was exciting, you know, like you were independent, you had your own home, you were creating a space that was yours. I think there was that thrill. Like for all of us, the first six months for Marisha were both exciting and challenging. And there were extra challenges too. A service provider was managing Marisha and her friend's home. And the location was far from the women's family homes. Again, for my sister, it was different too because she had all these different people coming in to support her. And I know initially that was really hard for her because it was a service provider. She didn't know who was coming into her home. And then we went back and said, this isn't working. We want to self-manage because the two women are both very anxious because, you know, from one day to the next, they don't know who's coming in to support them. At the same time, the location was just too far away for both families. The two women moved here to Wynnum, um, which was great because it was back in a local community where they'd both grown up and closer to both their families. That was certainly a good move for both of them and for the families as well, which was great. So Marisha and her school friend were living in the townhouse where Marisha lives now. They've been housemates for five years. Sharon sensed that things weren't going so well. My sister would come and stay at my place once every couple of weeks and she'd come for dinner on Sunday night and she wouldn't want to come home. And I was like, no, there's something wrong. I came and did some sleepovers and I thought, you know, I need to get some insight into what was happening. What was really noticeable was that my sister would pick up all of her Michaels and her her favourite things and go off to her bedroom pretty much right on 10 o'clock, if not before. Her school friend would also go off to bed around 8, 8.30. I know that my sister is a bit of a night owl and she likes to stay up. She would go to her room and close the door. And what I worked out was happening was that the staff, because they were paid for a certain period of time and that awake shift finished at 10 o'clock, the two women were being asked to go to their rooms at 10 o'clock so that then the staff person could go upstairs to the uh, staff room and go to sleep because their shift was technically over. And so I made sure that when we had that change in her team, Marisha would just go to bed when she wanted to go to bed. It was a good reminder to staff that you're here to support my sister to live in her home and that if she chooses to stay awake till midnight or one o'clock or two o'clock, then she has the freedom to do that because this is her home and you can support her. And really she doesn't need a lot of support. She just needs to know that there's someone here. So you can go off to bed. 
and go to sleep and if Marisha needs you, she'll come and get you. Marisha's flatmate moved out suddenly. A year on, Sharon thinks it had some surprising silver linings. One thing I did when my sister's friend moved out was we had a bit of a clean-up and I think a combination of my sister's friend moving out and me coming and sort of helping my sister to reclaim her home, there was all that change and I know my sister, she, she needs time for those big changes. I noticed there was a lot of second-hand things in her home. There was this real culture of second-hand shopping and not against that, but for me it, it devalues my sister. I s- want to see her with things in her home that are new, that are nice, that are matching. And so I um, made sure that, you know, all of her linens, all the towels were the same colour. The tea towels are matching and the crockery is all the same and there's not this mix match of different plates and cups and I guess sometimes I make assumptions on what my sister will like and so I remember taking my sister shopping and we were getting, I think it might have been the colour of the curtains and I was asking her if she liked this colour and it was just this flat out no. (laughs) And um, it was a, a, a good reminder that, you know, I um need to check in with my sister because it is her home. It's not what I think she will like, it's what she likes. So it's been fun to support her to do that and we're both a bit excited about when the property becomes ours and we don't live in this rental arrangement anymore where we can't, you know, technically do anything. But I'll have to remember that, you know, this is my sister's home and I need to check with her what she wants because her tastes are different to mine. Since Marisha has been living alone, her family has also supported her to work on her communication. The difference now that she's living alone is, I think, quite significant for when she was here and sharing her home with her friend. Marisha is a woman who has limited speech. Well, she has a voice, but it's a high-pitched vocal box and... Sometimes it's difficult for her to formulate, say, like S sounds. And we're doing a lot of work with supporting her to enhance her communication. And so she quite often, I think, was either misunderstood or ignored because her friend that she lived with had really good speech. And so her needs, I think, were often overshadowed because the other woman was able to clearly articulate what she wanted. It was a real concern for me before mum died because, you know, parents often speak for their son or daughter that when she did die that Marisha wouldn't be able to clearly state what her needs and wants are. So we've been able to work a lot on her speech and supporting her to do that and really noticed a big difference in when her friend moved out to now. I think it was great that they lived together for the start. Now I've seen my sister really 
evolve and reclaim her voice and her home and who she is because she's got that physical space to do that as well. Other things that make Marisha's home feel like hers are how staff come into her home, who has keys, and Marisha knowing who's coming when. When there's that changeover of staff and people come in, that you don't just come in, you knock on the door and ask that, you know, hi, Marisha, and she'll let you know that you're welcome to come in. And also our keys. I know the previous staff group used to all have a key to her home. It was like, no, this is Marisha's home. So now only Marisha has a key. I'm the only other person that has a key and that's really just for letting tradesmen in if she's out and for emergencies. And I think just the whole language around it being her home, yeah, it's been good to change that, that whole dynamic around that The sense of it being Marisha's home has grown in other ways too, as she takes on other responsibilities. So my sister, I suppose, has has had that life of privilege where she's had a family member do a lot of things for her in the past. And now that she has the space in her own home to do her own daily tasks. She's really embraced that. She goes and does her own grocery shopping. When she was living with her school friend, that was often done by a staff member. And Marisha, I guess her diet and her eating habits were restricted because her friend was always on a diet. Uh, So now my sister's able to have, you know, the chocolate and the ice cream and the chicken crimpy biscuits that she loves in the cupboard so that she can go and get them whenever she wants to. She does like to cook. Um, She doesn't like to do her gardening. She will hang out her washing. Yeah, she does need assistance with, with most things around her home, but she'll certainly give it a go. It's not only family members that can help build someone's sense of home. Sharon points out how support workers can assist a person with disability to take on the role of host of a dinner at their home. As a family member, we hardly ever got dinner invitations. I sort of try and guide and lead her support team now. It's really interesting to try and educate and teach them that, you know, I need you to support my sister to develop relationships with her family and that might mean a dinner invitation. And I guess that was hard at first to recognise that you had to actually ask someone to ask you to do that. Like I was obviously had this expectation that a worker would know that my sister would want to have someone for dinner whereas actually I have to actually ask the staff to say, well, look, I want a dinner invitation and then it will happen. The realisation for that was quite interesting for me because you sort of have this expectation that these natural things that I take for granted don't happen for my sister. I have to actually make them happen. 
Like, if you do it as a person, why can't you support my sister to do it? If it's a natural thing that we do as family members, wouldn't you think as being a supporter to my sister that you might want to ask her, does she want to have a family member over for dinner? Or it's other things like I've given her team a list of family birthdays and anniversary dates and it's only might be a particular worker that might remember that or I might ask the team to support my sister to create a birthday calendar so that she knows that, you know, she's got to ring her niece Elsie on her birthday or organise to have a present or organise for her to come for a coffee or a cake or something. But it's that the constant reminder, I think, that that's, that's your role to do that. Marisha being in her own home by herself has meant that she's connected and well-known in the community. Recently she had the dinner invitation from the neighbour, which was great because it was that whole recognition of all that you work towards with building those informal networks for your family member. You know, it might have taken six years for that dinner invitation, but it is a dinner invitation and it's opened up that opportunity for her to build those relationships with people that she lives next to. It's been really important to ensure that my sister's visible, visible in her home and where she lives, but also out in the community. We know that people keep people safe. So what does Sharon wish she knew before she started supporting Marisha to live in her own home? I think the biggest thing is trust. Trusting workers. I'm a person who trusts people and trust has been broken. And I think it's really hard to build that trust back up again. Families share that that particular vulnerability of their family member and their family to workers. Sometimes that gets taken for granted. There's an energy that gets zapped from families each time that you have that change in staff. I've learnt that you just have to be upfront and honest from the beginning and you have to act quickly if there is that threat to that trust. Otherwise, it becomes toxic. For my sister, there's an increased vulnerability because of her her limitations with her being able to express that, but we're doing a lot of work on that now with her. Sharon is also planning for the future, for when she's not around. Succession planning is so important. We've got a whole episode about it, episode eight. Here's Sharon speaking at that conference presentation you heard at the beginning. Think about succession. So, you know, the death of mum has really highlighted that for me now too because I'm conscious that I don't have any children. Our brothers are useless in terms of, (laughs) aren't they? They're not going to be any good at picking up the mantle. So now we've got to look at, you know, whether there's a niece or, yeah, who's going to pick up the, the baton now to carry that on. 
Living on her own has made a huge difference to Marisha's life. I think the difference of my sister living in her own home, she is the owner of her life and what she does. With her being able to live in her home where she's comfortable, where she knows she can be vulnerable, that's really important. With my sister living in her own home, she has that space and the freedom to live the life that she wants to live and to do it on her terms. She's she's very good at saying she's the boss. So now that she she's reclaimed her voice in her home, she's the boss and she's pretty good at telling everybody she's the boss and I'm happy that she's the boss. That was Sharon West and her sister, Marisha Target. Living with another person with a disability doesn't always mean that people are compatible and can mean less control. Support workers have an important role to play in building trust, tuning into what genuinely makes a home for each person and fostering old and new relationships. What safeguards people is people for people with disability to be visible, well-known and valued within their local community for their contribution. And you've got to say, (laughs) my home, my way, isn't it? Yep, my home, my way. In the next episode of My Home, My Way, you'll hear about unique models of support, paid and unpaid, to help you live and stay living in your own place. So a circle of support, it's generally people who are friends and family of Jacob's who come together to sort of brainstorm and think and help plan and and help Jacob craft what's his future. You can find the show notes for this episode with the main points and a transcript on My Home, My Way website. The My Home, My Way website also has lots of resources, stories and tips for you to get your own place on your terms or to support someone else too. Type My Home, My Way into a search engine or go to myhomemyway.com.au slash podcast. My Home, My Way is made by NACBO, the National Alliance of Capacity Building Organisations in Australia. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Turbul and Jagera peoples by Hugh Rose Miller for the Community Resource Unit with assistance from Margaret Rogers and Danielle Mason. It was hosted by me, Jake Briggs, and produced by Jane Curtis with executive producer Deb Rouget. Sound engineering by John Jacobs. My Home, My Way is produced with the support of the Australian Government Department of Social Services. We'd love to know if there's anything we could do to make this podcast more accessible and your feedback in general. Contact us through the My Home, My Way website. Thanks for listening.